Take your Bibles with me, if you would, and open them to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, this morning. Gospel of Luke, chapter 15. As we come to really what is the most encouraging chapter in the Gospel of Luke. When we set out to preach through Luke, um, I knew chapter 15 would be on the horizon and was looking forward to it. Didn't anticipate how long it would take to get here, but nonetheless was excited for the truths found in this very chapter. It is highly, highly encouraging. Whatever your background may be from this week, whatever sin you've been struggling with, um, Luke 15 will give you assurance, will give you confidence, and I hope and has been my prayer will thrill your heart like it has mine. We find today the heart of God being relayed to us from the mouth of Christ. Uh, Luke chapter 15 is all about three parables. All three parables stress the same point. God loves to save sinners. That's His desire, that's His heartbeat, that's His purpose and His mission, and that's what Luke 15 is all about. Uh, Very famous parables. Uh, The first parable is the parable of the lost sheep. Then verse 8 picks up the parable of the lost coin. And then most notably, verse 11 picks up the parable of the prodigal son or Uh, the returning son, the the younger son of the father. Uh, All three stressing this fact that God not only promises to, but wants to forgive. That's a major difference, right? God certainly most assuredly promises to save those who come to Him. But it's even more than that than in what we find Christ talking about in Luke 15. It's that Jesus also enjoys saving. I can make a promise to you and strive to keep that promise, but that promise is guaranteed if I enjoy its fulfillment. The same is true with Christ and salvation. Today we're going to look at verses 1 through 10. We're going to take the first two parables of Luke 15 together because they're virtually identical. Uh, We can take these two parables and set them side by side, which would be helpful if you're a visual person, and you'll find that their structure is the same. You'll find that their point is the same you'll find that much of their language is the same. Now, there's different characters, different focal points throughout both of them, but really they're identical in their presentation and in their purpose. We find in them uh, some differences, like in verses 3 through 7, we find a shepherd man dealing with sheep. In verses 8 through 10, we find a woman dealing with a coin. However, in both parables, the point is stressed that each individual had much and lost one. Also stressed is that they lay aside or leave the majority of what they have in pursuit of the one. In verse 4, you find the kind of pursuit that's being relayed. The shepherd man goes after the lost sheep. In verse 7, the woman seeks diligently after her coin. In both parables, you find the same language uh, in verse 4 and in verse 7. They both seek until the object is found. The end of verse 4, the man is seeking the lost sheep until he finds it. The end of verse uh, 8, the woman is seeking diligently until she finds it, her lost coin. Then both pick up and transition. Verse 9 and verse 5, when they have found their lost item, then... Virtually, it's the same from that point. They both rejoice. 
both call together their friends, both call together their neighbors so that they can have a celebration together. Both are personally rejoicing over what they've found. So there's these two distinct parables that have so many similarities. And and really, if you look in verse 7 and verse 10, the exact same point. And I think Jesus is sharing these two parables to stress the point of verse 7 and 10 so that they'll be all-inclusive to say, I want you to really get what I'm saying. I want you to really understand the joy that's in the heart of God over the repentance of sinners. We see Jesus employ this technique in other ways throughout His ministry in the Gospels. Sometimes He'll say, truly, truly, I say to you. That means pay attention. Other times He'll say, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. In fact, I think He he did. He just says that in verse 35 of chapter 14. That's how that chapter ends. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. It means pay attention. Focus on what I'm saying. Paul will even use similar language in his letters. He'll say, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. It means understand and get the point of what I'm saying. Jesus is employing that same tactic here. This kind of flashing light, pay attention tactic. Only in a a much more profound way. Because he doesn't just repeat a word or repeat a phrase. He repeats the point in two distinct yet similar parables. I'm going to share it once, as he often does. And just so I can make sure you get it, I'm going to share it again. The exact same point. In virtually the same way. So we look at the beginning of Luke chapter 15 and we should understand the importance of what Christ is trying to get across to us and the purpose of these parables. He's screaming... Pay attention. Pay attention to what I'm trying to tell to you, uh, teach to you, because it is vitally, vitally important. All throughout the Gospels and the life of Christ, we learn many things about the person and heart and character of God, don't we? But this is the one that Jesus is stressing with great intensity. I immensely want you to understand what I'm saying. Let's begin in verse 1 and 2, looking at the context of where these two parables are going to be shared. There's something going on. The whole issue here arises because of the company that Christ is keeping. If if you look in verse 1, you'll notice that Luke reports and says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. The company he's keeping is the company of tax collectors and sinners. But what I want to highlight real quick and and somewhat of a side note is that they are the ones drawing near to Jesus. It's the tax collectors and the sinners who identify something in this man that makes them want to be around him. That's very significant. Something about Jesus is attractive to these individuals. Something about him is different than what they've seen in the other religious leaders or the other individuals in their their context, in their society, their culture. Something is imploring them to go to someone they wouldn't ordinarily go with or go to. If you were labeled a sinner or a tax collector, most likely you never entered a synagogue or the temple. You never had anything to do with the rabbis or religious leaders. You wouldn't be caught with Pharisees or scribes or Sadducees or anybody from the Sanhedrin. Part of that is because of the religious leader's attitude and part of that is because of the tax collector's and sinner's attitude. But something about Jesus is drawing them to hear Him. 
We know his words are different, but there's something about his person. Church, I just want to say that's still true today. And that is the most productive, most healthy, best way of church growth. For far too long, we've expected lost people to be attracted by the same things that the world has to offer only within the church and wrapped in a religious context. That's not what attracts people. What attracts people is the distinctness of Jesus Christ. That there's something transcendent offered in Him. There's something beyond and above the normal political garb and the normal opinions being shared and the the normal uh, rigmarole of the world. There's something higher. There's something elevated. There's something I can't find anywhere else. That's where the light of the church shines in the world. It's not in looking like the rest of the world. It's not in treating people like the rest of the world. It's not in following the, the social standards or the social co- culture or, or the social relationships of people around us. It's being like Christ. And to a lost world who's hurting and looking for a solution, Jesus is what is attractive. In our methods of church growth and reaching the lost, we don't have to try to conform to what appeals to them. We just need to be like Jesus. Jesus is attractive. And for these people, they're flocking to hear Him. He's different. Now let's talk a little bit about the tax collectors and sinners because that really helps us understand what's going to take place in the rest of the passage. Tax collectors, we should know by this point in time, but tax collectors were hated individuals in their culture because they were fellow countrymen who sold out to help Rome. They were all about being on Rome's side. They chose to be with Rome so that they could get rich. They chose to be with Rome so that they could get protected. And what they did was they helped Rome oppress the Jews by collecting unfair taxes. And then they would collect just a little bit more to rob from their countrymen to provide for themselves. And so their fellow countrymen would look at them as betrayers. They they would see them as committing treason. And so they weren't liked. They were hated. The sinners, on the other hand, are treated or defined a little differently in culture of this time. They're not just hated, but they're seen as immoral. Generally ungodly and unrighteous. They didn't care anything about the law, or so people thought that's what this label meant, that they didn't care about the law, they didn't care about keeping the law, they didn't care about the things of God, and so they're immoral, ungodly people that you shouldn't associate with. They're the evil and wicked of of the crowd. Tax collectors may be sellouts, helping Rome oppress the rest of the world, but sinners, they're just unclean and ungodly. And so this was a relationship between religion and these tax collectors and sinners that was fractured, and nobody sought to reconcile it. In fact, in extra-biblical writings from Pharisees and rabbis of the time, they would write how they would not associate with sinners and tax collectors, not even to teach them the law or point them to God. They were seen as hopeless causes. That's the group that's with Jesus. And so in verse 2, we encounter some different people. They're seemingly the opposite of tax collectors and sinners, although they're really the same. They're the Pharisees and the scribes. We've encountered the Pharisees and we know the scribes. The scribes are those who are 
more like lawyers or interpreters of the law, experts in the law. And on the outside, they were seen as pure and righteous and godly, and they've got it all together. And so there's this great disconnect between tax collectors and sinners, not in reality, of course, but in appearance, that those are the people who reject God and we are the people who serve God. And these Pharisees and scribes are found in verse 2, grumbling. Now don't you find it rather ironic that those who are seen to be opposite of God are the ones who are drawing near to God and those who are seen to be as working for God are the ones grumbling about the work of God. That's what's taking place in Luke 15, 1 and 2. They're grumbling because of Jesus' behavior and interactions with this type of crowd. In verse 2, this is what they're saying. This man, Jesus, receives sinners and eats with them. Now we'll see this manifested later in Luke chapter 18 where we, where we encounter another Pharisee and tax collector situation. The Pharisee and the tax collector are both praying and in verse 11 of Luke 18, the Pharisee stands by himself and he prays this way, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. We all encounter this attitude and behavior again. It's being expressed right here in Luke 15, verse 2. This man receives sinners and eats with them. He's interacting with immoral, ungodly individuals. And so they're grumbling and complaining instead of drawing near, grumbling and complaining about Christ's behavior, his interactions. This word receive sinners is somewhat misleading. It's a little bit more in depth than that. It means that Jesus not only welcomes them, but he associates with them. In other words, it means he doesn't mind his name being attached to them. Now that is rather shocking, isn't it? Because that's opposite of how we interact with the world. We want to so guard our holiness that we really don't want our name attached and associated with immoral things in the world. And to a certain extent, that's right. But this word receive sinners in verse 2 means Christ is not ashamed to associate with them. It also goes a little bit further. It's not just in his interactions with them, but it's the whole context where he's found with them. He's eating with them according to these Pharisees and scribes, which we know in the culture and time means that he's relaxing with them, he's conversing with them, he's laughing with them. It's meant to denote complete fellowship. So not only does Christ not mind associating or attaching his name or reputation with them, he doesn't mind fellowshipping with them, kicking back as, as friends. It's intentionally keeping their company. So it's not just like these tax collectors and sinners happened up into the crowd of people listening to Jesus. I mean, after all, it's, it's a relatively big crowd that often follows him. And it's not just like they're standing on the fringes. It's that Jesus intentionally is keeping their company. And I think we could say even enjoying time with them. Which, from my perspective, shows such great patience of Jesus. And such great kindness. He, he's not unaware of who they are. He knows they're sinners and tax collectors. And more than that, he knows the extent of their sin, how serious it is that they've transgressed God's law. 
and yet he's willing to spend time with them. To me, that shows, just as a side note, extreme patience and kindness and compassion. So it's in this context that we begin to find our Lord teach a parable in response to the grumbling of the religious leaders. Why are you eating and associating with such a motley crew, with such immoral, ungodly, backstabbing, sold out kind of people? Look in verse 3 and let's read these two parables as Jesus begins to explain why He's keeping such company. Verse 3, He told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus is a master teacher. And He, he comes right at these religious leaders. Which one of you, in verse 3, verse 4, wouldn't do this? Now again, we can take these two parables and set them side by side and follow the structure and layout of both. And, and the structure and the layout of both is virtually identical again. And so I'm going to show you a few points and show you how they connect in both parables. In verses 4 and 3, really just verse 4, and in verse 8, we find the same point being stressed. It's that Jesus pursues sinners. We know this parable is going to be referencing Jesus, so uh, that's how I'm going to refer to it. In verse 3 and 4 and verse 8, we find Jesus pursues sinners. Again, he begins with this sheep and coin kind of interaction, this shepherd and woman interaction. Now, a big number of sheep are present, 100 sheep. One goes missing. For the woman, it's a big amount of money too. Ten coins and she loses one. Both points are the same. The majority is safe and one is missing. Now, in the world's eyes and according to the world's advice, it would be count your losses and move on, right? That's a small fraction of what you possess. One of these coins, if we take the parable literally, would be one day's wage of an individual. So this lady has ten days' wages. She's got enough to last for the week. So count your losses and move on. It doesn't make a whole, logical, a whole lot of logical sense that this man would leave an entire flock in the open in pursuit of one because he's risking something coming after his flock while he's not present. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense that this woman would devote an entire day possibly chasing after one coin when she still has nine more present. 
But that's the whole point that Jesus is trying to stress, right? He's trying to, to stress the importance of just one. Just one. Even in comparison to 99, even in comparison to nine other coins, what matters is one. For the religious leaders, and even for us alike, this is a major point to understand. Why does Jesus keep company with tax collectors and sinners? It's because each one matters. We look into the heart of God through, through the words of Christ right here. We get a beautiful window. And looking into that window, we see warmth, compassion, acceptance, care, and enjoyment and desire for each individual sinner. Each tax collector, each sinner matters immensely to Jesus. I'll transfer that truth to your own life for a moment. You matter immensely to Jesus. The proof I would lay before you to stress that point is the cross itself. Each one matters individually and each one is worth enduring the wrath of God on a hunk of wood that you might be found, that you might be saved. Another way that we see in this this text, the, the importance of even just one, is the language that the Lord uses. Now, He doesn't throw words together like we sometimes do. He's very deliberate and precise in His language. And in verse 4, He says that the shepherd, when he realizes he's lost one, it's so important to him, each and every sheep, that he goes after that sheep. Now, we're notorious about expecting lost people to come to us. That's not what Christ does. And that's not what happens in these parables. The shepherd goes after the lost sheep. The woman, in verse 8, seeks diligently. She's not just roaming about and going about her day thinking, hopefully I'll stumble upon this, this coin later. We were gone to the baseball game on Friday. Larry somehow lost $10 and was quite okay with that apparently because he just kind of went about his business and happened to find it later. That's not what this woman does. This woman seeks diligently. She's moving furniture. She's sweeping the house. She's lighting a lamp. It tells us of perseverance in the pursuit of even just one. It also tells us of an intentional pursuit in leaving just one. This woman's moving furniture. She's lifting up the rugs. She's opening the fridge. She's lighting the lamp. She's doing everything she can to locate one coin. This shepherd takes his flock, puts them in, in the wilderness, in the open country, so that they can graze and have water and freedom to roam. He takes care of them before he leaves them. It's an intentional pursuit. I know what I'm doing, and I'm doing it with purpose. It, another way of saying it is a relentless pursuit. Now, wouldn't you say, with me, as I paraphrase the question to you, that God was relentless in His pursuit of you. Because I did not seek out God myself. I didn't pursue after Him. He came to me. Now, that's still proof today, right? I still choose the way of sin too often in my life. And God is the one still relentless in His pursuit of us. It's a relentless pursuit that we find in these parables. A dedicated and passionate 
pursuit. It's even a sacrificial pursuit. This man who's lost the one sheep is willing to walk and look in every nook and every cranny under every bush for however long it takes. Because look at the language in these parables. I'm not just going to go spend an hour looking. Verse 4, he's going to look until he finds it. What's going to be the cutoff mark? What's going to cause him to stop searching? Finding the sheep. Nothing else. Same with the woman. She's seeking diligently in the end of verse 8 until she finds it. Not until she has a dinner party to host or somebody comes to the door or she's got to go to work. She's going to look until she finds it. It's a sacrificial pursuit. Relentless and persevering. And it shows us that God will do what is necessary to seek and to save that which is lost. Please don't ever doubt that. God will do and has done in Christ what is necessary to seek and to save the lost, to provide salvation. But even in this world today, God may cause tragedy, hardship, God may isolate an individual so that they might come to genuine saving faith in Jesus. Now the Lord, continuing on here in this first parable, the Lord knows that He has to do this because of the very nature of the sheep and the coin. The sheep and the coin are meant to communicate another truth, helplessness. Because neither one of them do anything to be found. In fact, the sheep is the cause of its own lostness. It's wandered off from the flock. It didn't listen to the shepherd. It didn't follow instructions. It meandered away and now is lost. Can't find its way back. The coin is lost and can do nothing to be found. Both are entirely reliant on the initiative of the finder. Which for us is God. And the reality is the same for you and I. Just as these, this coin and the sheep can do nothing to be found, you could do nothing to be found. Nothing. You're entirely reliant upon the initiative of God in Christ. We've seen this before in the Scriptures. Adam and Eve didn't even know they needed salvation and God already had a plan in place. The initiative to save has always been God's initiative. Even when we cannot contribute anything. And that church is a truth that we ought never forget for our personal lives and in our evangelism. We're not against the people who are lost outside of this building. They can't do anything about it. And we're not waiting for them to come and ask about the Gospel. Maybe they will if God works that in their heart. The truth is, they need the Gospel taken to them. And called to respond. Just like you and I were called to respond. Every sinner is lost and needs to be found and can do nothing to contribute to it. We are little children dependent upon God always and forever, especially in our salvation. And yet God is faithful and enjoys finding that which is lost and saving it, rescuing it. Well, thirdly, real quick, under this first point, The pursuit of the shepherd and the woman after that which is lost shows us something more about Christ 
It shows us the divine expression of Jesus or the divine realization of Jesus. The Lord doesn't quote it, but if you have your Bibles and want to flip over there real quick to Ezekiel chapter 34. The Lord doesn't quote it in that, those parables, but nonetheless, the Pharisees and scribes, as stout in the law as they were, would have known the connection and made the connection, and we have the benefit of having the whole Bible, and we can make the connection. Ezekiel 34, God is chastising the leaders of Israel because they're not shepherding His people. They're, they're taking for themselves, even feasting on God's people. They're not taking care of them as God has commissioned them to. If you look in Ezekiel 34, verse 5, God is speaking. In referencing His people Israel, He says, So they were scattered, because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the wild beasts. God says, My sheep were scattered. Verse 6, They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill, my sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. You skip down into verse 11 and God says this, Behold, I, I myself, there's the emphasis of repetition, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. Verse 12, as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered. Skip down to verse 15. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. Verse 16. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. Undoubtedly, this is applied to Christ. The time has come and has been realized in Jesus when God Himself will be the shepherd seeking out the lost sheep. And not just the lost sheep of Israel, but even as Ezekiel says, the lost sheep that are all over the world. Jesus is saying, that's me. I'm the one who will find. I'm the one who will rescue. I'm the one who will locate and deliver. We find this being the expression of the reality of Luke chapter 19. We'll find this eventually when we get to Luke 19 and verse 9. Jesus is talking to Zacchaeus and He says to Zacchaeus, Today salvation has come to this house since He also is a son of Abraham. Verse 10, Jesus says, For the Son of Man, referencing Himself, for the Son of Man came what? To seek and to save the lost. Luke 15 is the expression of that reality in Luke 19. I am the shepherd who seeks and saves the lost. Church, what we find in Luke 15 is a wonderful truth for us. Our whole assurance of salvation is built upon this truth. That God not only promises to save, but He enjoys doing it. Real quickly, we'll move on through the rest of the parable. Verse 5 and 6, and then in verse 9, we see the point stress that Jesus rejoices over repentance. In verse 5, we find the same language. When the shepherd has found the sheep, he does something that the woman doesn't do because it doesn't make sense. But he lays the 
the sheep on his shoulders and he rejoices. He secures it, takes care of it, makes sure it's going to come home. Verse 9, she, when she has found it, she does the same thing that the shepherd's going to do. Calls together the friends and their neighbors saying, Rejoice with me for I found the coin that I lost. What we learn here is that the joy that's taking place in both the shepherd and the woman and really in God is a joy that cannot be contained, is a joy that Jesus says will be made public, is a joy that He is unashamed of. There is coming a day when God will proudly declare you to be His child before the entire world. You and I get to make that claim now. We know that to be true in our hearts when the Spirit of God bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God, the book of Romans says, but one day God will show up again and He'll make it abundantly clear to everybody in the world Though you might have questioned or doubted or accused, this one is my child. This one. Just like the rejoicing here will be made public. But also I want you to notice something else. Both of these individuals in verse 6 and in verse 9, both of them call their friends and neighbors together and they don't say, hey, you guys be excited. Y'all throw a celebration or y'all rejoice. What they say is, rejoice with me. Don't overlook that fact. Again, Christ is very deliberate and precise in His words. Don't overlook what He's saying there. This is a personal joy of the finder. An intimate joy. Rejoice with me in what has taken place. I have found that which is lost. There is joy in the heart of God and the salvation of sinners. Let's skip down here to verse 7 and verse 10 real quick because this is Jesus' explanation of why He's sharing the parables. What the parables actually mean. Now, in, in reality, you can't divorce uh, the, the explanation in verse 7 and 10 from uh, the rest of the parables because they kind of morph into one another. But for today's purposes, I do want to take them apart and examine them each because there's some richness located in verse 7 and 10 as Christ explains why he's sharing this parable or, or what they mean. We find some words in there that I want to highlight. One is the word repent. The joy of heaven or the joy of God, heaven or the angels of God as it says in verse 10, is, is a reference to God Himself. It's used in other places in Scripture just like that. But the joy comes from repentance, not mere association. And I think that's an important distinction to make. Because there's a lot of people who associate with the church, associate with Jesus, and dabble in the Scriptures and Christian religion. And they'll stand before Christ on the end day, as the Bible says in, in countless places, and be rejected. Most notably in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, I never knew you. It's not that, hey, I, I once knew you and don't anymore. It's, I never knew you, even though you thought you were okay. It's not church attendance that brings joy to the heart of God although that's a form of obedience. It's not Bible reading or Christian small groups or Christian friends. Those aren't the things Christ is talking about here. Christ says what brings joy to the heart of God is repentance. Not a good work. Not perfection. Not your ability to do this or that or the other or to maintain or to keep this or that or the other. What brings joy to the heart of God is when imperfect sinners turn from trusting self to trusting Jesus. And by the way, that's not a one-time event or occasion for you and I. That is a daily occasion for you and I. Luther defined repentance as a daily work or as a daily daily need. 
God rejoices, especially in the repentance that leads to salvation. Godly repentance uh, that godly grief produces, according to Paul. It's repentance that makes the Lord rejoice. A sincere and genuine trusting in Jesus. But there's, other, there's two other words I want to highlight real quick. Please stick with me. The first word is the word sinner. Again, found in verse 7 and in verse 10. Jesus actually uses the word sinner. It's the exact same word the Pharisees and scribes use. And I think that is rather important. Because Jesus is saying that they are right in their designation of the company that He keeps. He's not issuing these parables to correct them in their assessment of the tax collectors and sinners. In fact, Jesus is agreeing with them. You're right. I keep company with sinners. I find that to be incredibly, incredibly important because that means something to me. That means Jesus knows your sin, knows you're a sinner, and still pursues you. It's not that the Pharisees and scribes were wrong. Jesus says you're right. They are sinners. And I still keep company with them. And I still pursue after them. That, that takes my understanding of the love of Christ for sinners and the enjoyment to save sinners beyond my comprehension. Maybe your mind and heart can grasp this. My mind and heart cannot. This magnitude of salvation is far beyond me because it says to me, when I say that you're, they are sinners and I rejoice when they repent, that means I know their sin. I still pursue them. That means I know every moment of their hypocrisy, every moment of their anger, every, every sin of dealing with alcohol and pornography and adultery, every abortion they've had, every homosexual attendancy that they have, every time they committed divorce or, or exercised pride or gossip or slander or bitterness or, or drug use or anything else you might want to plug into that list, I know every bit of it and still pursue after them. We can turn to all these lists that are in the New Testament. Romans chapter 1, I at least want to turn to this one, where where Paul lists out all these sins that are part of our evil nature. In verse 29, he's, he says they, but he's talking about all humanity. In verse 29, he says they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, we can go on to other passages, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 and 11, Colossians 3, verse 5 and 6, where these long lists of sins that are in the human heart exist, and we can understand that Jesus, even knowing each one of them, pursued after us. Don't give up on the lost people around you. The murderer in prison and the gossip that keeps slandering your name and the, the college student addicted to pornography, or the family member addicted to drugs, or the, or the neighbor that keeps getting drunk every single night, don't give up on them because Christ didn't. And don't give up on your sanctification because Christ isn't. 
Every possible sin that you have committed with your hands, that has come out of your mouth, that has occupied your heart and your mind and has made up your corrupted sinful nature, Jesus is intimately aware of it. And He says, I still pursue you and I rejoice when you repent. You and I cannot fathom the immense depth of sinning against a holy God. Yet Christ understands it immensely, perfectly, and still says, I rejoice when such a wicked enemy of my law, my nature, my character repents. Someone so hostile to me, as we read in Colossians 1, hostile to the things of God, I find joy when they become a child of God. Again, I want to highlight verse 7 and 10, this other word. It's the word one. We've talked about it once already, but I want to highlight it again because it, it is the main theme of these two parables. Each one, each sinner, individually known, pursued, and accounted for by Christ, There's an old Christian band when I was in high school who sang a song about being lost in a sea of faces. And with God, we're not lost in a sea of faces. We're each individually known. You and I, we do things, and, in, and as churches we do things, we do ministries hoping for a huge yield or huge return. Uh, like we think about going into the harvest, coming back with truckloads of converts. That's our desire. But God... Is focusing on the one. Individuals. Each one matters to Christ. That means something. That means that Jesus has or is pursuing you individually. And if I could sink that one truth today into your heart, I would. With every ounce of effort and energy within me. Jesus has or is pursuing you Individually, you are part of a corporate body, a corporate church, and a, and a world full of human beings, but you personally matter to God. If you need assurance, if you need to combat doubt this morning, if you need to know what grace really is, understand that truth. I rejoice over one sinner who repents. Lastly, real, real quick, please hold with me here. This is the most important truth in Luke 15. All of this means the singular point that God's joy in us is not in our achievements for Him, but in His work done for us. You are the sheep and the coin and you cannot repent if God does not call you. So God's heart of joy towards sinners is not in sinners being perfect, not in sinners cleaning themselves up, not in sinners being morally sound or good or obedient. God's joy in the repentance of sinners is firmly and solely rooted in His work accomplished in them. There is no pressure for you to clean yourself up and maintain a sense of perfection or appearance of holiness so that God might be happy with you. The joy that's in the heart of God over the repentance of sinners is in the work that He's accomplished through Christ on the cross. We, again, don't contribute to that joy. 
we don't contribute to His saving work. Jonathan Edwards, one of America's first and perhaps greatest theologians, said this, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that makes it necessary. It's a liberating truth to realize God has joy in saving sinners and that is totally outside of us. Another gentleman named Edwards, his name is James Edwards, says repentance is not the cause of God's love, but the result of it. Your repentance doesn't incur God's love upon you. God's love already rests upon you. That's why you repent. It's a, a remarkable truth to consider that God has joy in our repentance and that He is the one who gives us repentance. His joy is firmly planted in His act of transforming us as sinners into saints. Never in your ability to be good enough. That doesn't mean we don't strive for holiness. We don't strive for obedience because a changed heart desires those things. But the reality is, God loves saving sinners taking those who are enemies of the cross and making them children of the cross. I'd leave you with this text this morning from Hebrews chapter 12. Paul understood this truth. Others understood this truth. Whoever wrote Hebrews understood this truth that God has joy in saving sinners. In fact, one of the most frequently used terms in all of Paul's letters is the word grace. And whoever wrote Hebrews understood this. In chapter 12, the author writes this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, and then hear this, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Joy does not go with the other words in that verse. Endured, despising, shame, and yet there is joy that took Christ to the cross. We're at this point in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus has already set His face towards Jerusalem. There's this huge shift in Luke's chronology where Christ is doing ministry in other parts and then He sets His heart towards Jerusalem and He's moving solely towards the cross it's because Luke 15 he finds joy in saving sinners his heart wells up at what he can accomplish in their atonement you need not fear losing your salvation and you need not near or fear thinking you're too far gone in sin that Christ won't care for you because it always will bring joy to the heart of God to save Two application thoughts. One, we ought to remember this in our own lives every day. Because we struggle with sin until Christ comes back. And we ought to remember Christ loves saving sinners and that salvation also includes not just your justification before God, but your sanctification making you more like Christ. He's not giving up on you. You don't give up on you. Secondly, we ought to remember this truth in our evangelism. If this is the heart of God, it ought to be our heart as well. If God loves the salvation of the lost, we ought to be people about the salvation of the lost. 
you and I, taking the gospel as Christ did to us, that people might be saved.